me again. All right. Good morning. Good to see everybody. I told them and it makes total sense to me why they would want to go to Taco Bell because you really can't get much more authentic American food than that. <laughs> it's cheap, it's fast, it's tasty, and it'll eventually kill you. So you can't get any more American than that, right? So, all right. Romans chapter 12, as we continue on with what we were doing last week. Last week, we stood together and read the first two verses of Romans 12, and this morning, we're going to do that again. And the truth is, we may do it several more times after today, because like I said last week, there is just so much contained in these two verses here, more than can be covered well in just a couple sermons. And so hopefully, I don't know when that will be, but by the time we get through the first two verses of Romans 12, you may be able to just recite it off the top of your head. And hopefully you will have a greater understanding of just those two verses than you did before. So let's do that. Let's stand together and read from God's Word, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you take the truth of your word this morning. You do just what your word says here, God, that you will just transform us by the renewing of our mind. God, would you wash away the lies that we have bought into and uh, just instill your truth in us that we may know you more and live lives that glorify you more in this world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Last week I explained how we are pretty much entering kind of a new phase in Paul's letter here. He spent the first 11 chapters unpacking some incredible truths about sin and salvation and the nature of God. And then now in chapter 12, he's moving from doctrine to application. He's now going to spend the next five chapters telling us that we should then do with all these incredible truths that he pointed out in the previous 11 chapters. Last Sunday, I pointed out how... Out of everything that Paul could have picked out of those 11 chapters to tell us what to build our new life in Christ on, he picks the mercies of God. He urges us in verses 1 and 2 to live our new lives in Christ because of the mercies of God through Jesus. That was the whole point of the message last week, that the Christian life is built on something. It has a foundation. It has roots. Because of the foundation that was laid in chapters 1 through 11, therefore, we live the life of chapters 12 through 16. And that foundation is summed up as the mercies of God revealed in Jesus Christ. This is why we live the way we live. This is why we talk the way we talk. This is why we do certain things and don't do certain other things because of the mercy of God in Christ. One of the points from last week was that 
you and I, we exist to put God's mercy in Christ on full display. That's why we were created to, to live. We were created to live to display the mercies of God that have been extended to us through Jesus. In chapter 12, Paul is going to give us some specific ways that we can do that. And we looked at some of those last week. But there's something else that's very significant in verse 1 that I want to point out today. Read verse 1 again. He says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Before Paul describes our new life in Christ as merciful, he first describes it as worshipful. This is something that we must understand. And if you're one of those who like taking notes, here's something good for you to write down. Before we give ourselves away in mercy to man, we give ourselves away in worship to God. Of course, I'm not talking about singing songs to God. You know, I think a lot of times when we talk about worshiping God, we automatically start thinking of singing songs to Him. But singing is just one very small part of what it means to worship God. True worship, first and foremost, is done by how we live. Where our lives should be done as worship to God. And we must be careful to never separate worship of God from service to man. Because if we do that, then Christianity becomes nothing more than a social agenda. It does absolutely no good for us to show mercy to anyone if we aren't doing it out of a heart of worship and so that they will then be led to worship themselves. If our good deeds are not done to express the worth of Christ then our deeds are not worshipful and in the end are not even merciful. Meeting someone's physical and emotional need with no intention at all of meeting their spiritual need is not mercy. Therefore, it is absolutely essential that Paul describes the Christian life as worshipful before he describes it as merciful. Or to put it another way, Paul defines the Christian life as worshipful so that it can be merciful. Apart from worship, there really isn't true mercy. And here's another line for your notes. A merciful lifestyle is dependent on a worshipful lifestyle. So let's look closer here at what Paul means by a lifestyle of worship. First, he says that we worship God by presenting our bodies a living and holy sacrifice. This morning, I'm going to spend the rest of the time talking about what Paul means when he says the word sacrifice here. Because I think a lot of times when we hear or read the word sacrifice, we tend to think of it in Old Covenant or Old Testament terms. There's something that we must always keep in mind. And that is the fact that now that Jesus has come and he has fulfilled all of God's promises and met all of God's requirements, we are no longer under the old covenant with God. Our faith in the finished work of Jesus has made us the recipients of a new covenant through Jesus. Jesus came and completely changed things. 
I mean completely changed things. And so we need to understand what has changed in regards to sacrifice. We cannot take old covenant principles and apply them to new covenant living. That's exactly what Jesus was talking about when he said you cannot pour new wine into old wineskins. It doesn't work. And so it's important for us to know what, it, what new covenant sacrifice means. Three years ago, I did a series of messages called A Place at the Table. And I talked about this very thing in, in greater depth. And a lot of you weren't there then, so I'm going to repeat some of the things I said then. And those of you that did hear that, it's good for us to hear these things again. The main point of that series was this. And this is good for all of us to write down and keep it somewhere that we can remind ourselves of this. That under the new covenant, God no longer deals with us at the altar. He deals with us at the table. Understanding what that means and believing that will change your life in radical ways. See, in the Old Testament... The altar, as you know, is where the place sacrifices were made. In order for people to remain in right standing with God, they were required to bring a certain animal to the temple, present it to the priest. The priest would lay that animal on the altar and kill it. Those animal sacrifices were essentially payments to God for the sins that the people committed. The sacrifice covered the sin. And it wasn't just a one-time thing that they did. They had to keep making these sacrifices over and over again because they kept sinning over and over again. The sacrificial system of the Old Testament was a foreshadow of what was to come through Jesus. He became the ultimate sacrifice on the cross. And his sacrifice didn't just cover sin, it removed it for good. Look at uh, Hebrews chapter 10 for a minute. This is a a key verse in understanding all this. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11 and 12, says, Every priest stands daily, ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, talking about Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Now notice here that the writer of Hebrews makes a point to contrast the fact that the priest stood all day long, but Jesus sat down. What's the significance of that? Well, the priest stood all day because the sacrifices kept coming. They had to keep on and keep on making these sacrifices. So the priest stood on his feet all day in order to receive these sacrifices. But Jesus sat down because he was the full and final sacrifice. There are no more sacrifices needed. There are no more sacrifices required. It is finished. But many people today still have this old covenant mentality in that they think that they have to come to the altar time after time and offer something to God in order to make up from, for some sin that they 
have committed. They offer something to God, like they're making this sacrifice in order to prove to God how, how sorry they are for what they've done or to prove to him how serious they are that they're never going to do it again, hoping that in return God will forgive them or remove this horrible guilt and shame that they're feeling. It's still the old covenant way of sacrifice, but without the blood and gore of animals being involved. It's the mindset that if I do this for God, then God is going to in return do this for me. And if that's you, if you still struggle with that, that's how you, uh, you, you view your relationship with God, that you're always having to do something, you're always having to offer him something for you to, to remain in his favor, then I want you to realize something this morning, that you are missing the most fundamental truth of the gospel. You haven't heard, or you haven't, you've heard, but you haven't really heard and taken it in the best news that has ever been announced to man. And that is that Jesus paid for your sin in full. There is nothing left for you to pay. There is nothing that you can earn from God that Jesus hasn't already earned for you. There is nothing you can pay that he hasn't already paid. There is nothing that you can lay on some altar in order to sacrifice that the sacrifice of his body hasn't already taken care of. Did you hear that last line? I'm going to say it again. Tell the truth. I can't say it enough. There is nothing you can lay on the altar that his sacrifice hasn't already taken care of. If that's true, and I believe with all my heart that it is, then for us to act like we are sacrificing something for God on some hypothetical or symbolic altar means that we do not believe that Jesus' sacrifice was really enough. What he did wasn't enough, and so we got to do something else. We got to add something to that. Or we believe, well, it was enough to start the process. It was enough for me to be saved and and to receive God's grace. But in order for me to stay there, then I've got to keep making these sacrifices. Let me ask, was Jesus' death on the cross enough to satisfy God's wrath towards sin? Yes. Yes. Was his death on the cross enough to meet God's requirement for us to be made right with him? Yes. Was it enough to gain God's favor? Was it enough to receive God's forgiveness? Was it enough to earn God's blessing? If Jesus' sacrifice was enough, then what could we possibly bring to God that would do something that Jesus' sacrifice hasn't already done. Nothing. He's done it. it. It's finished. I sometimes wonder, think about that, because of the extremely high price that Jesus paid for us, the price that he'd offered to us for our salvation, to be made right with him, I wonder if it isn't just a bit insulting to God when we try to then 
offer him other stuff. I mean, think about this. Let's say you did something for someone that was absolutely spectacular. And you did it just as an expression of your love for that person. You didn't do it because you expected anything in return or you wanted to do something to them back. You just did it because you loved them and you wanted to show that. How would you feel then if that person tried to turn around and pay you for what you've done? Would that not be just a bit insulting? It would. You don't want their money. And if you took their money, it would immediately nullify the fact that what you did was just an act of love. Years ago, when my youngest daughter, Hope, was a toddler, she and I were the only ones in the house. And I got distracted doing something, busy doing something, and I got this eerie feeling that I needed to go check on her because... When a toddler's in the house and there's a period of silence, you know something's not right. And so I went through the house looking for her, and I couldn't find her anywhere. I called out to her, no answer. And then I looked, and I noticed that the back door was open. And I I didn't think she could open the door by herself. The place where we were living at the time at our house, right off, right behind the back fence of our backyard, we had this large pond. And so I go in the backyard, and I look all over, and I don't see her. I'm yelling for her, can't hear her answer back to me. And then I look, and I notice something that makes my heart absolutely sink. The gate to the back fence was open. And so I started sprinting that way. And I finally saw her, and her little legs were just scooting as fast as they could. And she was headed right for the the edge of this real steep uh, bank of the pond that went right into the deepest part of the pond. And so I screamed out to her, and I ran as fast as I could. And just as she was about to run off the edge of that bank, I scooped her up. And I held her real tight in my arms, and I just began crying. Knowing how close I just came to losing my little girl. What kind of father would I be if once she starts being able to work and earn some money on her own, that I required her to give that money to me for saving her life that day? What if I just started garnishing her wages because of what I did for her. She doesn't have to pay me back for that. I did it just because I'm her father. That's what good fathers do. They protect and they they save their kids. How do you think I would feel if she offered me money for doing that? That would hurt me because what that would tell me is that my daughter doesn't know my heart for her. The heart of God is so much bigger and so much better than the wicked heart of an earthly father. Why do we think time after time that we've got to pay God for his love towards us? 
if we think that, it's because we don't know the heart of the Father. Larry, I'm getting some big boom back here that's really messing stuff up. Grace and mercy are not, by definition, grace and mercy if something has to be given in order for us to get those things. Grace, mercy, and love cannot be bought or earned. They can only be received. If we had to do anything in order to get them, then they just would not be grace, mercy, and love. I was a youth pastor for several years before I really began to understand the grace of God. And looking back now, I can see that my misunderstanding of the gospel was pretty dangerous. It was dangerous for me to be in the position that I was in, teaching these young people God's word without really having a, an understanding of what Jesus' sacrifice really meant. And I'll tell you what, I've learned that there has been a lot of damage done to a lot of people and a lot of churches because of that same misunderstanding of the truth of the gospel. But during that time, I can remember a lesson that I did on sacrifice. And in that lesson, I described the altar in detail and talked about how the altar was a place of of pain, that it hurts when we have to give up something that is of value to us. And the altar was a place of loss. We lose something that we try to hang on to real tightly in our lives. And the altar was a place of death where we go and die to our flesh. And then I listed all these things that God would do in response to our pain, loss, and death that we we experienced and we brought to God on the altar. All these blessings from God that would come to us as a result of our sacrifice. And it was a great message as far as being full of a lot of emotion and really being able to connect with our, if I do this, then God will do this mentality. And it actually uh, resulted in a great response from the kids. There were a lot of them who came down to the what? To the altar. They did. Because I touched on that same thing that we have in us, the same thing that allows somebody like Bernie Sanders to be as popular as he is. He's like, if you'll vote for me, you'll get free stuff. And we'll say all the time, if you do this for God, he's going to give you stuff. And so that's, we respond to that like crazy. And so I got the students to be able to respond to the altar call. But to tell you the truth, that message didn't have anything to do with the true gospel. And looking back now, I can see what was missing in that lesson was the cross. I can see that what I was doing, I was actually doing a pretty good job of describing the cross without realizing it. And what I missed was that Jesus endured the pain. He suffered the loss. He swallowed death. And here's the kicker. So that we wouldn't have to. So we wouldn't have to. He took our place on the altar. He gained. He earned. He bought everything for us that we could never do on our own. 
And what I have come to since realize that has absolutely changed my life is that God's favor and his blessings toward me are not found in any self-inflicted pain that I put myself through in order to get him to do something for me. Those things are only found in the pain that Jesus went through on the cross on my behalf. Under the new covenant, God no longer deals with us at the altar because Jesus was the full and final sacrifice. There is nothing that we can offer God that Jesus' sacrifice hasn't already paid for because of he did for us what we could have never done for ourselves. God now deals with not at the altar but at the table. The table is where the family gathers together. It's where good things are experienced. It's not a place of pain and loss and suffering. The table is a place of joy and gladness. Next point. The table is where we enjoy the benefits of Jesus' sacrifice. David said in the 23rd Psalm, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. What that means is that we can enjoy the benefits of Jesus' sacrifice no matter what the situation looks like around us. Our enjoyment of the Father is not conditional on our circumstance. Because of my faith in the finished work of Christ, I have access to all the benefits of his sacrifice and nothing can keep me from enjoying those benefits, not even me standing in the presence of my enemies. Even there, he has a prepared a place at the table of his goodness. Am I saying that because of Jesus, we shouldn't experience pain, loss, suffering, and death? Not at all. I mean, we live in a broken world, and we are going to experience, experience those things a lot. What I'm saying is that we don't have to experience those things in order for God to do something on our behalf. Because of Jesus, even, even when we do experience the pain, loss, suffering, and death of this broken world, we are still seated at the table of the king. And we have access to everything that his blood paid for. And so in light of everything that I just said, what does Paul mean in Romans 12:1 when he says, Present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. I believe that Paul used the word sacrificed in order to contrast the old covenant with the new. There's another place in the New Testament that Paul does this. Here in Romans 12.1 and in Hebrews 13.15 are the only two places that Paul mentions sacrifice in reference to how we live for God. Remember, Paul is writing to Jews, people whose entire culture was centered around the sacrificial system. Their relationship with God was based entirely on what they sacrificed for him. Those sacrifices were burdensome. They were painful. I seriously doubt anyone ever looked forward to sacrifice day. They had to go through all that and give up stuff that was valuable to them. It wasn't a pleasant experience. It was painful to have to give up your best livestock. It was bloody. It was messy. It stunk. The word sacrifice had a very negative connotation 
to the people back then. But because of the mercy of God through Christ, our relationship with God is no longer based on anything burdensome or painful or negative for us. There is nothing for us to have to dread in order to remain in good standing with God. So Paul's use of the word sacrifice in Hebrews 13, 15 is where he said, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. Now, if we looked at sacrifice from an old covenant perspective, this would mean that our praise to God sometimes needs to be painful. That we just need to, to, you know, you've heard it, man, even when you don't feel like it, if you just go ahead and do it, even when you you don't want to, man, God's going to give you so much in response to that. Now, I believe that we should praise God. I'm going to praise him even when I don't feel like it, but it's not so I will get something from him. It's just because he deserves my praise no matter what. But this is not some painful sacrifice that Paul's talking about when he's talking about praise to, to God. God does not want our begrudging praise and worship. 2 Corinthians 9 7 says, Each must do as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under, under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Not a begrudging giver, but a cheerful one. And so for Paul to refer to our joyful praise as a sacrifice, I believe he's kind of using a a play on words here. It's like he's illustrating the point that under the old covenant, everyone's relationship with God was based on a painful sacrifice. But under the new covenant, our relationship with God now is based on joyful praise. It's as if he is saying, before Jesus, we had to give God our best animals. You know what we get to give him now? Our praise. Our praise. That's all we have to give him now. This isn't like it was before. It is altogether something entirely new. And so I believe that he's essentially doing the same thing in Romans 12. I mean, just notice the contrast here with the Old Testament sacrifices. You give an animal to the priest, he lays it on the altar, and he kills it. That animal represented the person's sin. The the sins of the person were transferred to that animal, and it was slain there on the altar. It's dead, and it's sinful. What does Romans 12.1 say about the sacrifice that we make to God now? It is alive, and it is holy. Just the exact opposite of an old covenant Sacrifice, which signifies that a new covenant sacrifice means something completely different than it did under the old covenant. Folks, this is a gospel, which means good news. It's not good advice, it's good news. I think a lot of preachers today are spending too much time trying to give good advice and they're not doing a much announcing of the good news. It's the good news that will change us, not the good advice. And the good news is that Jesus' sacrifice met the requirements that any sacrifice we could make could never meet. He has completed what we were lacking. He met the full requirement. He paid the full price. His sacrifice was enough. His desire for us now is to just enjoy what his sacrifice has purchased. He wants us to take our place at his table and feast 
on his mercy. And when we do, it births out of us a lifestyle of worship. The table leads to worship. Let's pray. God, you are a good, good God. Lord, too good. For our sinful minds to be able to grasp. As your word says that there is power contained in the announcement of the gospel. And Lord, I am asking you to take that power now and change hearts. To renew minds. To silence the lies. to shout truth. Lord, I pray for those in this church body. I know there's got to be so many of them because I used to be there too. I felt like my relationship with you was just nothing but guilt. I was trying to think of what all else I had to do in order to feel like I had your favor and your forgiveness. God, so much that I was trying to sacrifice for you not realizing what I already have in Jesus' sacrifice. God, that's what a miserable way to live because if we were still required to offer you something, how would we ever know when that was enough? We wouldn't. Jesus is enough. And we thank you for that. We thank you that Jesus is enough. Lord, I pray that that would click for somebody in here for the first time. Holy Spirit, would you come now and just humble us by your grace and your mercy. Lord, we so do not deserve it. If we did, it wouldn't be grace at all. So Lord, I pray that you help us to just be able to receive it. Receiving of your grace, we will be changed from the inside out. Lord, I pray for anybody in here this morning who may have never put their trust in your final work at the cross, received the life that your resurrection has made available. How they've never fully put their trust in Jesus as the only way for them to be made right with you, the only way for them to be forgiven. And God, if there is somebody who doesn't know you through Jesus, I pray that you would draw them to you right now, that you would awaken their spirit, that you would run out to your child and save them before they fall in and die. To show them that you're a good, good father. Holy Spirit, I'm asking you to come and have your way. Let your will be done in the remainder of this time together. Let your power be in operation. In the mighty and the matchless name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.